today I'm going to pitch my fundamental idea of particles and planes. And then later we're going to be doing a feature called Monster of the Month, where we're going to be talking about one of the monsters in the monster manual and what might be interesting about its biology. Cool. So let's jump right in. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read an excerpt from the player's manual. This is Appendix C about the inner planes. The inner planes surround and unfold the material plane and its echoes, providing the raw elemental substance from which all the worlds were made. The four elemental planes, air, earth, fire, and water, form a ring around the material plane, suspended within the churning elemental chaos. So the first thing I think we should talk about is the way our world works, which everything can be broken down into a combination of elements. We have the periodic table, which we can use to describe almost everything we observe, which there's a plethora of those. Now, each of those elements can be further broken down into smaller pieces. Yeah. Protons, neutrons, and electrons. And based on those is how we organize the periodic table. Mm -hmm. And those pieces can be further broken down into quarks. Yes. So there are six quarks, the common pairs. So there's the up and down quark, the top and bottom quark, and then the strange and charm quarks. Right. Now those could possibly be further broken down. That's where string theory or other theories come in. But for now, we've found these pieces. We know they exist. So we could say that everything in our observed universe is comprised of these basic elements. Now, D&D is a fantasy world, if you didn't know. And a lot of the ideas from it are taken from old mythologies, fantasies, and they're now revamped or modernized. But a lot of the uh, those ideas are taken from these old ideas. And not, it's not just mythologies, it's you know philosophy. Old philosophers postulated that all of everything was composed of elements, small things that were combined together and made more complex objects. And they postulated that those things were things like air, earth, fire, and water. And there's lots of different variations. There's actually a lot of different cultures who believed this. Ancient Greece, Persia, Babylon, India, China, the, the list goes on. So that's where I think the idea for how the D&D world exists. And so my theory is instead of it breaking down into quarks, particles break down into elements, the elements of air, earth, fire, and water. And I would probably add to that positive and negative. The books allude to these other pieces as well. Now, the planes, the inner planes that reflect these same names are a macro scale version of these microcosms. So each plane, respectively, contains the source of these elements that combine to make the material world. And as you travel further and further out into these planes, they become more and more pure. And at the most outer edges of them, I would guess that they are just those elements. 
raging around in pure energy form. So how does that affect the way things work? Well, it's a lot easier to comprehend where a fireball comes from if you can think that every particle around you contains elements of fire. You can think of stripping the fire out from even a small amount of particles and throwing them. Or there are things like the necklace of fireballs where like that energy can be encapsulated in something rather small. Right. So these elements are some of the most key magic that we see, and those can be further combined to see different effects. I would probably add an additional element to the ones that I've already said, which is something similar to what Aristotle thought. Uh, he added another element he called aether, which is kind of this idea of spirit. And I think that ties to my idea that there is this connection between you and your spirit form that you use to manipulate these elements. Now, in the material world, you can occasionally find beings that are called elementals, right? Yes. And you would definitely associate these with the planes of elements and these particles. In fact, I think like their lore is that they come from those respective planes. Right. So let's take a fire elemental. Most of them would be the element of fire, but there would be some other elements in this. I think, you know, the, you can't have like a completely pure form and perhaps it would even just be a combination of the fire element and an aether element where there is this spirit particle matching with the fire particle and because of that, being able to create form and not just chaos, not just energy. Look in the monster manual specifically about what they have to say about elementals in general. It says, elementals are incarnations of the elements that make up the universe. Air, earth, fire, and water. Though little more than animated energy on their own planes of existence, they can be called upon by spellcasters and powerful beings to take shape and perform tasks. On its home plane, an element is a bodiless life force. Its dim consciousness manifests as a physical shape only when focused by the power of magic. So kind of based off of that, do you think that your spirit ether element is something specific to the material plane? Or is it in all the planes, but needs to have someone who knows how to utilize it properly? Yeah, I would think that... Like the inner planes, the outer planes would probably be the location where you'd see the most reflection of Aether because it, they're more about spirit. And the material plane is where all of those elements kind of coincide in equal form. I really like reading from the book because it's talking about how they're little more than animated energy. And I think animated is a keyword there where they are animated through Aether. And thinking about that makes me think that magic is really just the learning of the manipulation of Aether. Something that is innate to everyone that is living. It is the living element. Is the difference between an animate object and an inanimate object. Because of that, you can see how someone like a sorcerer would have perhaps a 
better connection to their aether or a stronger surplus of it, a stronger fount of it. And a wizard would study how to take their limited source of power and use it to manipulate elements in a way that's more highly technical. Someone like a monk would be closer to a sorcerer. They have this energy within that they use it to produce more energy into their bodies. What about classes like warlocks and clerics? Is it that their deities are somehow bestowing on them this ability, like similar to like a sorcerer, so it's not a learned thing? Or is it direct intervention each time by their patrons? That's a good question because there are spells that are written as direct intervention where you do call upon your deity or whatnot to change things, ask them questions, etc. But are these gods omniscient enough to be present for every casting of your spell? And I would say probably not. Do you think those gods and patrons lie outside all of the planes? Or are they themselves manifestations of those same core elements? Reside on the outer planes. Let me read real quick. Go for it. If the inner planes are the raw matter and energy that makes up the multiverse... The outer planes are the direction, thought, and purpose for such construction. Accordingly, many sages refer to the outer planes as divine planes, spiritual planes, or godly planes, for the outer planes are best known as the homes of deities. So that seems right. Reading that, I think that agrees with my theory that those planes are the ones that reflect the the idea of Aether, that these gods are closer to elementals of Aether. It's interesting. And... Aether is the thing that binds all living things like the Force. I almost quoted Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes magic doesn't always work the way we want it to. Usually this is a consequence if we don't roll well enough. How does that manifest with your theories regarding this? Is it just inability of the spellcaster to actually like put these elements together in a useful way? Is it possible that they try to draw upon the elements and they're not actually there at that moment in time? Well, let me turn that question with another question, which is at work, you do scientific things. You you try to achieve a specific result. You have written methods on how to achieve those results. Protocols. Protocols, yeah. So you follow these protocols, but do they always work exactly the way you thought they would? No, not necessarily. I mean, usually you're testing a specific hypothesis and something may not go the way you want because what you're testing is just not biologically true. Other times, protocol itself is not optimized for what you're looking at. So then you kind of have to spend some time tinkering with it to see if I change some of these conditions, can I achieve a particular result? So I think things would probably be similar. So the closest parallel would be a wizard, right? They are forming these theories that are the closest thing to the observable universe that they can find. And then they are writing these protocols to achieve specific results. And those, like our theories, those are the closest thing we can get to, but maybe not exactly what's going on. So they're not optimized. They aren't exact. And when it comes to being in the field, when you've got the stresses of combat going on, perhaps you you aren't following all your protocols to the letter and something comes out the way you didn't 
want it to be. Yeah, that's true. Honestly, there are things that work better in the lab, like certain days than others. And you're like the weather, it has to have something to do with the weather. <laughs> exactly. Imagine if you had to perform your protocols with someone is trying to swing a hammer at you. <laughs> so for sorcerers, it's all instinctual. It's the difference between a physicist explaining how a ball flies through the air and someone throwing and catching a ball, right? You don't need to know the formula of gravity and wind resistance and an arc to calculate where to throw the ball and how to catch it. You do it instinctively through practice. So that's what sorcerers do. They manipulate these things instinctually. And the more they do it, the better they get, the more precise they get. I guess we didn't necessarily address the cleric question or other classes of that sort. If they don't have divine intervention every time, I would think that their patron or their god is lending them part of their aether. And now that I think about it, aether would be something that not only allows you to bring life to something, to combine things, to combine elements, but it's also the core to intelligence, right? So like the illusion thing we spoke about on the first episode, where you can't create something believable without a lot of practice. But if Aether is something that is intelligence or understanding, then along with the power to manipulate and create something is the ability to do those things. And that's why gods would be so powerful is because they are these beings of pure Aether, these you know, immense intelligences, the, this, the immense power. I suppose it's a bit like a gluon, where a gluon is a particle that is the piece of the strong force that binds these particles together in our world. So aether is a bit like that, where it's it's the piece that binds it binds things together. But in addition to that, it's the spirit, the intelligence of things, the ants. Did you want to talk anything about Feywild or the Shadowfell? Do these elements work the same way there? Yeah, they are both material planes that are just echoes of the true material plane. So I suppose things work a little differently because the Feywild is inherently more magical, more exciting, if you will. And the Shadowfell is, you know, the depressed reflection, the more inactive reflection. So perhaps there is more negative energy in the Shadowfell and more positive energy in the Feywild, but I don't know, because the Feywild isn't inherently good or towards the good side. It's just, it is also very deadly and and can affect you in harmful ways if you're just from the material plane. But perhaps it has more of the positive energy particles existing there, as well as perhaps more Aether existing, because magic is more powerful there inherently. So a... Fireball cast on our normal material plane is possibly different than one cast in the Feywild. More powerful or just more efficient to cast? I don't know the exact lore, but I would probably guess that no matter what, it's going to be unexpected, right? So if you took a sorcerer from the material world and suddenly brought them into the Feywild, they would probably struggle a lot. If you look at video footage from from astronauts going to the moon. These are people that are athletically trained to be fit. And 
they're bouncing around up there and they can't get anywhere very fast, even though theoretically with lower gravity, you could move faster. Theoretically, a sorcerer could cast a more powerful spell, but also it could be less efficient. They aren't used to it. Something could go wrong. Lots of possibilities for that. And you would assume something similar for the Shadowfell as well? Or do you think that those would be kind of the opposite and be less powerful? No, perhaps you're right. Perhaps in this analogy, the Shadowfell would would be more like a higher gravity planet where it'd be harder to do things. And that kind of fits with the theme of the Shadowfell where it's kind of dragging you down in a... Well, maybe if there's like negative particles, they are physically interfering with those elements. You can think of it as different states of matter, right? So we know if we heat something, the, our elements here, they're going to get more excited, more likely to move to a gaseous state. So maybe that's the Feywild where there's just more positive particles around. So we're maybe getting more energy. Things are moving faster. And then in the Shadowfell, things are moving slower because there's a bunch of negative particles that are slowing them down. So a colder analogy, although it may not be physically colder. No, I I think that's a great way of putting it because a way of thinking of those two planes is the Feywild is exciting. It's it's it is excited, right? The the nature of excitement, like gas, and the Feywild and the Shadowfell would be the opposite of that. It would be the slower moving, the the sluggish, the colder on the energy scale. You wanted to give us kind of a quick sentence or two summary statement of particle physics and magic in D&D. What would you have to say? So I would say that the illustration of the planes are a macro reflection of the microcosm in this world. And it would be cool if we had that in our world that we could point to these large observable things and have that reflect down to the micro scale. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to resolve Newtonian physics, the the science of observing planets and the way that large scale physics works down to quantum theory and particle physics. In D&D, we have the benefit of everything tying together in a nice bow. And the way that would work is every material thing is broken down into the elements of air, earth, fire, water, positive, negative, and aether. And the way that magic works is the innate thing that resides in all sentient beings, aether, is used to manipulate the other elements that are connected to it to create inordinary effects. There is an additional plane that isn't spoken of that is close to something like the outer planes, but it is the aether plane, where it doesn't have a three-dimensional space like the other ones, but it is connected to all the other elements in a way that allows people to connect and manipulate pieces of the world. And so that kind of goes back to our first episode when we were talking about magic and potentially how people can engage with magic is through this other dimension or what Mm -hmm. what have you, where their spirit or their aether is engaging with the other aether forces, basically. Right. And so I think I finally now have the name for that idea, which would be the plane of aether or the aether plane. Cool. Well, we would love to hear what you guys have to think about Justin's theory about the aether plane and the particle physics of magic. 
So with that, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about our Monster of the Month feature. Right. So it is currently September and September starts with an S. That's about the criteria we started with. (laughs) Yeah. So the monster we're going to be talking about this month is the salamander. And I think it actually fits pretty well with today's theme because salamanders are from the elemental plane of fire. So I'm just going to take a second and kind of read the first two small paragraph blobs from the monster manual about salamanders. If you have the monster manual for your reference, this is on page 265. Salamanders slither across the sea of ash on the elemental plane of fire. Their sinuous coils and jagged spines smoldering. Intense heat waves wash off their bodies with their yellow eyes glowing like candles in the deep set hollows of their hawk-like faces. Salamanders adore power and they delight in setting things on fire. Outside their home plains, they play among the burning skeletons of charred trees as forest fires rage around them or slither down the slopes of erupting volcanoes to linger in fire pits and magma flows. So checking out the book, there are two versions, a more animal type and a more humanoid type. And you'd probably assume that they resemble a salamander since that's what they're named after. But uh, I would say they're more akin to a snake, mostly because they are limbless, at least the one that's not humanoid. And in fact, I would say that they kind of resemble eels. They have some fish type attributes. The more humanoid version has two arms, a more humanoid neck, shoulder, and head. Both are colored like fire. So what what jumped out at you? Why did you choose this? Yeah, so there, um, the thing that what I think was most striking to me is um, that they fact the fact that they live in these extreme heats. So among animals here on our Earth, there aren't really a lot of examples of things that can survive such temporal extremes, whether that be extreme cold or extreme heat. The example of something that's known to survive both of those pretty well is a tardigrade. Everyone's favorite small thing. Yeah. It looks like a little water bear. A few others. There are some wood frogs in Alaska that can survive some extreme cold temperatures. Beetles that are also able to survive some extreme cold temperatures as low as negative 72 Fahrenheit. Worms that live near hydrothermal vents that can survive temperatures as high as 176 degrees Fahrenheit. Sahara desert ants that also survive very high temperatures as well. So one thing that I kind of noticed about all these organisms, with the exception of the frog, is that most of these are invertebrates. Mm -hmm. So they're in general less complex, very small. I thought the salamander was interesting because it is a vertebrate species. Uh, and is able to survive such extreme temperatures. So how can you tell that it's a vertebrate species? If you look at the pictures, you can see a lot of segmentation in them, which you could say, sure, worms kind of look like they're segmented. But the way they hold their body, it would be pretty much impossible to do that without having some sort of skeletal structure. So I think it's safe to assume that they are vertebrates. So more similar to a snake than a worm in its structure? Yes, exactly. The other thing that I thought was interesting about them was in addition to that they are vertebrates is that these are quite large creatures. 
So even the frogs that are able to survive those extreme temperatures are fairly small organisms. But it doesn't give the actual weight or size for the salamanders in the monster manual. It does say that salamanders hatch from eggs that are two foot diameter spheres of smoldering obsidian. So in order to be laying an egg that is two foot in diameter, you must be a fairly large organism. Yeah. That probably goes without saying. When a salamander is ready to hatch, it melts away through the egg's thick shell and emerges as a fire snake. The fire snake matures into a salamander adult within a year. So That's quick development. Yeah. And the salamanders are listed as large elementals. So, Oh, I see. So... The, the, what I was describing earlier, these are, I didn't see this. So the more animalistic form is the fire snake. So the young. Yeah. The juvenile form. Okay. And then the more mature one is humanoid. Yeah. So they seem to undergo some sort of metamorphosis for amphibians. This isn't uncommon. I work with frogs. They go from tadpoles to frogs and those look pretty dissimilar. I would actually say that the fire snake and the salamander itself are pretty similar morphologically. Obviously, it's growing limbs during that process, at least the forelimbs, but that's something that we see other amphibians doing, so that's not too unusual. It's craniofacial region. There goes a lot of morphological changes as well. I know you use craniofacial all the time at work because that's what you study, but for those that don't know, craniofacial is the face. The head and face. (laughs) Yes. The fire snake has this really elongated face and snout, very sharp teeth. And we see that kind of transforms into something that's a little bit more flat and humanoid. So at least in terms of undergoing metamorphosis, that's something we have some sort of understanding here on how that may be working. But trying to grasp this idea of how can this live at such extreme temperatures? I think partly one thing is it it's not on a normal plane. These things are from the elemental plane and perhaps some of the biology on the plains works a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. So one thing we know here on Earth and our planet is high heat is not good for DNA stability. It's going to cause those DNA strands to separate, which is good in some cases, but extreme heat like that is bad. So perhaps there is something slightly different about their DNA composition. Maybe our DNA is made up of Four different nucleotides, A, T, Cs, and Gs, and those have certain bond- binding patterns and certain levels of stability. So maybe the composition of their DNA is actually different nucleotides that are more stable at those higher temperatures. I wouldn't know off the top of my head what that would actually look like, but that's something to throw out there and postulate, mm-hmm. which would be really interesting. So let me interrupt you real quick. I'm reading the book here, and it says, <laughs> Living Forges. Salamanders generate intense heat, and when they fight, their weapons glow red and sear the bodies of their enemies on contact. Even approaching a salamander is dangerous, since flesh blisters and burns in its proximity. Which is a fantastic story. It's it's incredibly dramatic, but how <laughs> how could you possibly justify this biologically? So do you think that's happening on the fire elemental plane? Or do you think that sort of encounter is being described on if a salamander that somehow has come to the material plane? It could be both. So some of the research I was doing today involved looking at planes and 
you can visit other planes and obviously they aren't just the raw element of whatever it is, fire, for example. The planes all exist together, touching one another. And as they draw closer to the center, the elements mix. That's where it is philosophically closer to the material plane. You can travel to the inner ring of these planes and survive. But as it goes outward, it becomes more and more extreme. So these effects that it's describing, I would guess, is happening in that habitable inner ring or they happen to come to the material plane. It could be either. Okay. So obviously that's still a very strange thing. One thing I could possibly imagine is if the salamander itself is in the material plane, it has a bunch of this excess fire element with it that is very abnormal for this plane. So it just finds other ways to manifest it and expend it, which I think possibly could be what's going on there. How, how that happens biologically. Uh, I mean, some strange exothermic reaction or something like that. That's probably not going to be great for its cells. But we also have to assume that the exact biology of these are a little bit strange because they are from a totally different plane. I like that. So it's akin to something you heat up and then bring to a lesser energy place. Right. So or even, that heat. you know, dropping an ice cube into boiling water. It, the ice cube can't stay in that state. It has to compensate for it. But there is a slight trade-off where the water is going to cool down a little bit. You're saying that if a salamander traveled to the material plane and you observed it for long enough, it would eventually cool down. Um, that seems quite possible. Or at least it would like, yes, it would cool down. Whether it is cool to touch or not is a question. It's basically like a matter of we're reaching equilibrium with its surroundings, right? So at some point, it's going to be exciting the other fire elements around it. And maybe when they're both moving kind of at a sufficient speed to be balanced, then that's it's going to stop shedding its excess. But if it were to move, then basically you're going to a new area and you have to be repeating that process. Perhaps the element of fire is so essential to its construction that... As it cooled, it would also start breaking down. So it would be like the ice cube example where it's this solid structure that it can bear weight and all that. But if you put it in adverse conditions, a higher heat place, it's going to break down and turn into a liquid. Yeah, unless it has a way of actually it's self-generating more fire element, a way of like self-preserving that. But then I guess we never even addressed earlier, can these elements be destroyed? Can they be created? Does it behave like matter? <laughs> <laughs> that That's a really good question. I would think that like our world, energy and matter are connected and that it can be exchanged. So maybe it can create its own, but in the form of I ate something, my energy is not ATP, but it's a unit of fire elemental that can be expended. Yeah. Related to that, if you look at the salamanders, specifically its attacks, it has the ability to heat weapons. So this at least kind of suggests that it can transfer some of that fire elemental to that weapon in order to produce that effect. And that's, that's not hard to imagine, even if, if it's something akin to body heat. Right. 
there you guys have it. That's salamanders in a nutshell. If you're planning your campaign, maybe that's a cool monster that you want to throw in there. If you hadn't thought about them, hopefully at least we brought them to light for you. You guys should definitely check out the artwork for them. They're they're pretty cool looking. Yeah, I like them. So thanks for listening. That's been today's episode on the particle physics of magic and our monthly monster highlight. Yeah. If you have an idea or suggestion, send it in to scienceofdd at gmail.com and let the laws of probability be slightly weighted in your favor. Have a good one. Thanks for listening.